0: Hello, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm delighted to have you here today. For this episode, I have an interview that I'm republishing with my old friend, Aaron Goldberg. Aaron is one of the most in-demand jazz pianists alive. He's played with Betty Carter, Al Foster, continues to play with Josh Redman, Wynton Marsalis, Guillermo Klein, among others, and he's also a very well-respected band leader of his own trio. Um, which he tours with regularly. In fact, the music for this podcast is graciously um, was graciously given to me by Aaron to use for the intro music. And recently I've cut that back just because, As we talk in this interview, uh, people's attention spans are shrinking, so I I wanted to just jump into the podcast, but there's still, in the spaces between the intro and the body of the podcast, the main episode, and as well at the end, you'll still hear the Aaron Goldberg trio playing a cover of a Brazilian pop song called "Lambada de Serpente. And uh, Aaron and I have been talking a lot recently about the, the lessons that jazz can provide society and that's a conversation that I'll be having with him soon and publishing on the podcast. But I wanted to republish this early conversation, one of my first interviews uh, from 2017 that was originally published on Meaning of Life TV. Um, I wanted to publish that here because it, it sets the stage for how jazz is a language, and in my opinion, I think jazz is the most sophisticated and deep language that humans have ever created so there's a huge debt to the African American culture for creating this brilliant language of jazz and um, and and as you know I also think that there's lots that uh, spiritual practitioners both yoga and meditation practitioners can learn from the pedagogy the methodology of learning jazz around listening and improvising And and those are themes that I'll be continuing to explore going forward in the podcast. Um, But in this particular conversation, we discuss the language of jazz, why and how human connection makes jazz so powerful. We get into discussing the shrinking attention span of of humans and what that portends for jazz's listenership. Um, And Aaron gives some advice for new jazz listeners. I always learn a ton from listening to Aaron and talking to him, and I hope you benefit from this conversation, and um, if you're inspired, please check out his music. In the show notes, I give you a link to his own website, and I also have a series, or I also made a short list of my favorite Aaron Goldberg albums uh, that are linked to in the show notes. So do check those out. It's really important to support artists, and um, I'm very grateful for Aaron's generosity with me, and I would love for this audience to give a little bit of support back and and appreciation to him. So without further ado, I now bring you Aaron Goldberg, The Language of Jazz. Aaron Goldberg, how are you? Great. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. It's good to see you again. Um, Let me introduce us. I am Josh Summers, and this is Meaning of Life TV, and you are Aaron Goldberg. I knew you 25 years ago. We were in high school together. We overlapped for about a year then, and in the intervening 25 years, you have gone on to become one of the most in-demand jazz pianists on the planet. Um, You work as a band leader with your own groups and also as a collaborator with um, notable names such as uh, Joshua Redman, Wynton Marsalis, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Guillermo Klein, Al Foster, and Betty Carter, to name just a few folks you've worked with. You also have five records under your own name and many more as a collaborator, including A series that seems to be out of print called Baby Loves Jazz, which is a wonderful introduction to jazz for uh, children under six (laughs) or so. Um, So, we're going to be discussing uh, today on Meaning of Life your career, your process as a jazz artist, the state of jazz today, where it's going. Um, But maybe to start out, um, if we go way back to the early years, uh, you know, you, as I remember you, you had many opportunities open to you um, in terms of what you might do with your life. And I'm curious to hear now, what drew you in particularly about jazz? What was it about jazz that caught you and um, turned into this love affair?
1: First of all, thanks, Josh, for having me. It's pretty awesome to see you here in this uh, new context (laughs) and uh, reconnect with you in this way. So uh, I'm honored to be here. And I would say I I never, when I first encountered jazz, I never imagined that I would make a career being a jazz musician. I fell in love with jazz uh, for aesthetic, social, personal, um, maybe you might use the word spiritual reasons. Uh, And I I was never thinking that this was going to be my future in my profession. It was a... It was kind of like falling in love with another person uh at a very crucial age young age I was about 14 kind of in the throes of trying to figure out who I was identity issues tend to be important for all kids that age and I was no exception uh I guess sophomore year of high school I discovered uh there's a jazz class being offered by my high school our high school and uh I knew nothing about jazz. I, I grew up playing classical music. It's one of the many things that I did as a little kid and uh, my parents listened to classical music, opera. Somehow they seemed to have missed all rock music of the 60s and 70s as well as jazz. So I I had no idea what improvisational music was could be. All I knew was that I I wanted to take a class that would give me credit for playing the piano. Hmm. Um, and that just seemed like an, an easy and fun way to break up my school day. <laughs> and uh, what changed my life was that the summer before this this class, I received in the mail, we all received in the mail, a little cassette. This was back in the day of Maxell cassettes. And on that cassette, there were about eight classic recordings, classic songs by jazz masters like Miles Davis, John Coltrane. And uh, I didn't know what I was listening to, but there was a little note along with a cassette that said summer homework for jazz students listen to this cassette and uh I was a studious young man so I, I did my homework. I listened to that cassette possibly thousands of times during the course of that summer. And uh I fell in love with what I was hearing without knowing the the identity of the musicians, you know, the, the racial, ethnic, cultural background of the musicians what was improvised and what wasn't i couldn't even distinguish the different instruments uh, but I, I felt the power of the music in some kind of elemental way uh, intuitive way and i was you know i, I didn't have um, music of my own you know i didn't have a, a deep passion for the music that my friends were listening to the pop music of the day and i also wasn't deeply passionate about the classical music that i was playing even though i was able to appreciate its beauty on some level so this music, mu- music hit me, moved me in a way that no music had up to that time, and I, I would even say the only thing that had hit me in a similar kind of way by age fourteen were some some books, some novels that I had read. Uh, but from an artistic standpoint, this was the my first experience of some kind of communion, a feeling of communion with with art, and uh, that was a that was enough to give me passion to try to figure out how to play this music and I never ever thought that I could become good enough at it that I could make a living at it. Um, I I was not a particularly talented you know jazz student at age 14. Um, I had no improvisational experience at all and all I knew was the basic skill for for a classical pianist of turning notes on a page into sound and uh, I had certain amount of technique which gave me uh, an ability to play my instrument well, but I didn't have any ear. I didn't have any ability to learn by ear. And the major difference between learning to play jazz and learning to play classical music is that jazz is best learned by ear. And I had to develop my ear from nothing. So I I was at a relative disadvantage, maybe compared to some of the other students who had a little more background playing rock or or blues. However, I I was at a relative advantage because I had fallen in love with this cassette. So I had internalized... Um, Without realizing what I was doing, a a certain amount of very basic jazz vocabulary during the course of that first summer and during the course of that first year. And the more I listened to jazz, the more I started to uh, fill my brain with uh, essentially like the the basic building blocks of the jazz language as codified by the masters of this music and by falling in love with what they were doing and kind of hearing this language all the time through a process of immersion, when I started to try to speak the language myself, I, I, I made a little bit of sense, you know, in the way that a, a child speaker or even a baby, a toddler, starts to make sense in their native language very slowly but surely and maybe finds themselves speaking basic sentences, you know, after about four or five years. So that that was me. That was, I was just a child um, thrown into this new language but loving, loving every second of it.
0: In, in making that transition, that lateral transition from kind of a classically trained musician to a jazz musician, um, how did you, I mean, li- was it just listening itself that, that, uh, that allowed you to navigate that transition? I mean, how did you get stuff from what you are hearing
1: under your fingers? So I have to give credit where credit is due. I was very, very fortunate to have an excellent first teacher. Who I want to name. His name is Bob Sinecrope. You know him yourself. And uh, Bob Sinecrope, when he when he started teaching at my high school, at our high school, he was a math teacher. He was a jazz bass player by night and a math teacher by day. And he, to his credit and to the credit of the school, transitioned from being a math teacher to being a full-time jazz teacher. Because he had a certain amount of pedagogical experience as a math teacher and a, and a strong analytic ability, he, he had... Skills to become an excellent teacher, whatever he was teaching. And, but he'd also learned jazz in in the organic fashion of of basically learning the music, falling in love with it by ear, and figuring it out on his own. So he had the combination of the two sets of skills, you know, pedagogical skills and analytical skills on the one hand, and then an ear based organic ability to play this music and and the the realization the deeply important realization that this is an oral tradition and needs to be taught in that fashion which many jazz professional jazz schools at a a higher level you know at the bachelor and master's level still haven't figured out Um, so i i had this very crucial first experience with how to learn this music that was not based on anything written on a page, anything written on a chalkboard. It was not based on chord scales. It was not based on anything overly technical. It was based around the idea that you listen, you imitate, you sing along with what you hear, and then you just try to play what you sing. So you're singing in your head melodies, and you're trying to play those melodies on your instrument. That's a that's a skill that you develop by um, learning intervals and learning the sound of intervals and learning to play those intervals on your on your instrument. It's an ear based skill set mm-hmm. that's required. But the 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 beauty of it is that you're s- sort of speaking through your instrument in the way that you speak basic English. When you're a child, you say what you feel or what you think Um the equivalent in jazz is that you sing a melody and you play that melody without necessarily knowing what notes you're you're playing or what are the right notes or the wrong notes. So there's a certain kind of organic truth to the this basic method of of learning by ear. You just mentioned
0: in going over that. You mentioned something about higher education in jazz, whether it's the bachelor program in jazz studies at the big music schools, how they haven't figured this out. Um, I have a little bit of experience of that myself, and it, it does strike me that there's kind of this reverse engineering where you learn these highly sort of conceptual uh, notions around chord structure, naming things, certain scales, and you, you try to put these things under your, 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 your hands and, and be able to play them. But it doesn't actually get to this more elemental, as you're, you're describing, this elemental way of just speaking and communicating through an instrument.
1: Yeah, a nice analogy is, is the difference between learning a second language in a classroom and learning a second language as a child by immersion in a new country. Or or if you grow up bilingual with a parent who speaks one language and, and a parent who speaks another, you get both languages organically without ever learning any grammar. Right, it takes a lot longer, and you are much less likely to ever become an eloquent speaker of a second language if you try to take it up, say, in high school or college in a classroom, learning the rules of grammar, the conjugations of each verb. Um, the appropriate pronouns, uh, and it, and you never kind of get to that totally natural sure. way that a kid speaks a language, you know, after never having studied it in the classroom at all. So that's the proof already that the right way to learn is by ear. Of course, our brains are more plastic when we're when we're young, so it's easier to pick up these things. It's a little bit more difficult to do it later, but it's still the right method. Um, it's just a little slower. So, I think that after you become a relatively natural speaker of a language, a second language, musical language in this case, it's useful to learn grammar. It's useful to learn, in this case, chord scales. Um, You know, you can play the flat 13 on the dominant chord heading towards the minor. This kind of technical language is useful if you already know what it sounds like. And if you learn to translate, These numbers, these numerical relationships into sound uh, in the way that a a really great conductor or even a really great jazz musician who has this kind of skill set can look at a piece of paper that's full of notes and hear the notes, Mm -hmm. not play them, but hear what's on the page. You know, a great, great conductors, you can present them with this orchestral score, 60, 70 instruments written on a page and they can say, oh, wow, this is good. Or oh no this is this is crap we don't need to play this with our orchestra they don't you know that's a kind of sight to sound skill set that that great conductors learn that most jazz students never never develop so it's a waste to teach spend so much time and so much money teaching and learning um, all this technical ability if it if it's not translated into sound here mm-hmm.
0: so as you were going through that in your high school years and developing your ears. Um, when did, when was the switch flipped? And in, in the sense that you kind of felt that this was going to be the thing you're going to do or, or and was it, or was it not a, 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 a quick switch? It's more of a gradual wading into the pool and suddenly you realize you're six feet in.
1: Good question. I, I think that for me in high school, it was much more about, Um, developing a a sense of identity. So, you know, jazz is one of the few things that I loved that had nothing to do with my parents, my background, you know, anything that was expected of me. So it felt truly mine, you know, me, a part of who I was. There were some other things that I felt similarly about, but jazz is probably the most important at that period of time, between 14 and 17. And uh, I didn't, again, I didn't have any intention or belief that it was even possible to make a living at it but it was an integral part of my identity that I knew would be part of my life forever as definitely as a listener and hopefully also as a player at some you know at some level of ability but what happened was that I I realized that I didn't have to go to to college right away (laughs) and there was a guy writing a book at our high school uh, another teacher high school teacher writing a book about taking a year off between high school and college. And that was not something that I'd ever heard about, but I got lucky and heard about uh, Mr. Gilpin's book. And I never, the book was just in process. I never read the book, but I did have a conversation with him where I learned that actually this was starting to become a rare, but you know, possible um, uh, move for 17 or 18 year old kids. And so I it as a possibility to my parents and of course they shut it down fast And, you know, because they shut it down fast, I was more and more determined to do it. So then it was just a question of what I was going to do with my year between high school and college. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it would be wise for me to spend my year doing only one thing, because up until that point in my life, I had always juggled many things like like a lot of kids with ambitious parents. I was supposed to be well-rounded. And so I was always trying to juggle various different activities along with school. And I thought it would be interesting to just focus on one thing. And the thing that I was most passionate about at the time was jazz. So the the, the other goal of taking that year off, besides to, you know, focus my life a little bit was to leave the house, you know, leave my parents' house and hopefully leave the town I grew up in. So I, I became more passionate about the idea of going to New York and I uh, enrolled in a place called the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music in Greenwich Village, 1991, which was an amazing period of time in New York because most of the old masters of old masters of this music were still with us, and you could go out every night and hear Freddie Hubbard and Joe Henderson and Betty Carter and of course the Chick and Herbie and um, you know uh, it was it was also the, the kind of beginning of the second wave of the young lions bringing the, the you know so-called young lines bringing jazz back into the mainstream so young in other words young musicians mostly African American but not solely um, you know famously wearing suits and ties playing swinging you know blues let's say I don't know s- steeped <laughs> blues music steeped in the blues if not you know necessary blues Uh, and steeped in the deep, you know, the deep traditions of African-American jazz back, you know, back to the forefront. And so to speak, it it was a little bit sidetracked in the 70s, sidelined because of fusion electric electric instruments and the music that was a mixture of jazz with popular music at the time. So there was a movement famously led by Winton and then later Brantford Marsalis to bring acoustic swinging jazz back and also to to try to get it accepted as, you know, American genius music. I don't necessarily like the word America's classical music, but that that was a commonly Mm. thrown term at the time. And the real purpose of that, you know, someone that knows Winton well was, you know, was to give the great African-American genius musicians, you know, whose work he has famously trumpeted, no pun intended, (laughs) Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Thelonious Monk, Coltrane, Charlie Parker, um, Miles, their due to give them credit in the halls of the elite, you know, elite cultural and musical institutions such as Carnegie Hall, such as Lincoln Center, to give these masterful genius musicians they're do even though you know at the time they were treated as second-class citizens uh so and he's been phenomenally successful at that i didn't realize at the time but jazz in general was benefiting from that movement um jazz clubs were you know well attended there was attention from large record companies um paid to young up-and-coming musicians record contracts were being given there was tour support for young bands as well as older bands and there you know masters like like Betty Carter and Joe Henderson had a chance to have a kind of career rebirth in the, in the, in the 1990s which meant they were they were also hiring young musicians and so you could hope as a young and up and coming musician at the new school 1991 92 to get a gig playing with Betty Carter playing with Joe Henderson playing with Freddie Hubbard playing with Hank Jones playing with Barry Harris playing with Herbie and Chick and and, and this was a suddenly there was a career path that kind of opened to me um, when I was placed in this environment of other people who were, you know, aspiring to be professional musicians. And I had never been around anybody who had, was aspiring to be a professional musician. Um, and all uh, I was suddenly surrounded by people from all over the world, my age and a little bit older, who who had that aspiration. And what I was surprised to discover, was, at least after the first semester of working really hard, I wasn't that much worse than them. In fact, you know, I was actually probably better than some of them. Of course, there were also people that were way, way better than I was at the time. I mean, famous musicians like Brad Meldow and Roy Hargrove—they were students at, at the New School at the time, although they they didn't show up for class that often. But um, you know, I had I had amazing students, a little bit older and more experienced than me, who served as role models uh, and also, but. Equally important, ironically, people that were aspiring and were confident they would make a living as jazz musicians who I felt like were not actually that great or were at least were not that much better than me. So I realized it was possible. And then things got complicated because I'd never really taken it seriously as a, as a career possibility before. And then, you know, if my parents came down hard at, on the idea of going to music school for one year, they were definitely going to come down even harder on the idea of coming going to music school for four years, or just dropping out of music school and trying to make a living as a jazz musician in New York in 1992. Hmm. So anyway, that's that's the, that's the answer to your question about when it suddenly occurred to me that it might be possible. But, you know, I, I had to end up, I had to make a kind of compromise with my parents. Um, and I ended up going to Harvard and, and studying philosophy and psychology, but playing all the time with Musicians that went to Berkeley School of Music, Berkeley College of Music, uh, New England Conservatory. And I also studied with a second grade teacher in Boston named Jerry Berganzi. And I started to play in his band and in the band of a lot of well-established Boston musicians. And I spent my summers in New York staying in contact with my New York musician friends. And, and I sort of slowly built my career while I was in college. So while you were in
0: college, you know, yeah, I'm from, I live in Boston, so I know the, the area, and you were basically in Cambridge, Harvard Square, by day, taking classes, taking the bus down Mass Ave into Back Bay to the Berklee College
1: of Music at night? <laughs> Was- that is absolutely right. Sometimes in the afternoons, sometimes very late at night. I mean, I would do recording sessions at two in the morning when the studios were free and the, and everybody had free studio time. And I was also playing at a great club called Wally's, which you know, yep. uh, uh, where you know most of the, the musicians that passed through Boston, including people like Branford Marsalis and Roy Hargrove, played every night or weekends at Wally's, Wally's Cafe, going all the way back to the 30s. So uh, Wally himself was still alive at the time. He was close to 100. And I, I played at Wally's uh, almost every weekend first starting on Sunday afternoons and then Friday and Saturday nights from 9 until 2 in the morning for the grand sum of $15 with amazing young musicians from Berklee College of Music who I still play with today, um, people like Ruben Rogers and uh, Jacques Schwartzbart, Melvin Butler, um, a great saxophone player back in the day named Teodros Avery, uh, my friend Jimmy Green, who used to come up from Hartford to play with us, Darren Barrett, fantastic trumpet player, Jeremy Pelt. We all kind of grew up playing at Wally's. John Lampkin was the drummer, uh, and and that was you know my outlet, my musical outlet for most of the time I was in college. And I was just juggling the two lives, and they were surprisingly complementary. Um, sometimes my sleep suffered, but um, it just was... from a time of management logistical, so many
0: hours in a day perspective, I just it, it seems almost in, uh, superhuman to be able to pull that off. Given that uh, at least I, I just saw on Wikipedia that you graduated magna cum
1: laude <laughs> from Harvard. Well, you know, if you if you first of all, you know, most of the kids that end up in those kind of institutions have a certain amount of juggling skills already. In order to get into those kind of schools, most of the kids, you know, graduate high school not only having done well in their classes but also having some like extracurricular activities. Um, Hopefully they didn't just do them in order to try to get into college, but hopefully they actually had some passion for the extracurricular activities that they do. And, and one thing, you know, as someone who also attended, you know, good universities, like while you're in college, it's not as if everybody's sitting around all, all day and just studying. You know, you have a certain contingent of people that are partying all the time. You have another contingent of people that are playing a, a varsity sport. You have another contingent of people that are, you know, involved in, in community service and most people in in college are doing something else besides just studying and and for me that other thing happened to be jazz now the good thing about my my sort of second career was that it also paid me money um you know so which which allowed me to live you know a better life than i would have and it was also like the beginning of a career which i i wasn't thinking in any kind of careerish Kind of way, but I wanted to keep my musical skills up, and there just weren't enough good musicians attending jazz musicians attending Harvard that I could have had enough people to play with. Oh. And I felt that the most important thing I could do in order to improve, as a, especially as a pianist, a, what we call a rhythm section player—you know, piano, bass, drums, guitar—someone who can play in many bands, can accompany many people, and uh, you know, needs a certain kind of social environment social musical environment in order to, to develop. The most important thing I could do was not practice in a practice room, but play with great musicians. And I'd learned that already at the new school. And I put that into practice while I was at Harvard. I just played as much as I could with as many good musicians as I could. And, and every time you play with somebody good and they like your playing, that's another contact. That's another some person who's going to potentially call you for a gig if they get a gig. And your career is kind of underway um, based on all the musical connections that you make, not again, not for networking purposes, just for musicianship development purposes, and it translates into a career in the long run
0: so when you came out of college, what
1: was the first break you got so i I moved immediately to New York, you know I'd gotten my degree, my parents were happy about that, and uh I was now twenty two years old, and I felt like it was time to just do what i wanted to do so i moved to to new york i was fortunate because many of my friends moved my musician friends from berkeley and new England conservatory also moved to new york around the same time and i had stayed in touch with all my new school friends who had now graduated and so you had this whole mass of young musicians who were starting their careers at the same time and i got a lot of opportunities through those people mostly young musicians um people who are no longer young, but, uh, you know, fellow young musicians, people like Greg Tardy, Omer Avital, Ali Jackson, uh, Mark Turner, fantastic saxophone player. I, I started to play in the bands of those those friends of mine. And uh, I started my own band also in the late mid to late 90s with Ruben Rogers and Eric Harlan. And uh, I was still going back and forth to Boston sometimes to play Wally's and, and I was kind of just barely paying my rent for the first year or two. And then from playing with Mark Turner, uh, I met Joshua Redman. I had run into Joshua Redman way back in the day at the New School, and he had also gone to Harvard. So I knew from Josh's example that it was possible to juggle these two lives. Um, He did it sort of differently than me. He's the son of a famous saxophone player, um, Dewey Redman. And he grew up with this organic kind of ear-based relationship to the music. He heard it not necessarily directly from his father, but for the albums that were in his house all the time. And uh, he continued to learn in, in that fashion through college and practice and play as I did with all the, the great musicians that were attending Berkeley School of Music at the time. And I, I realized it was possible. He, he got into Yale Law School. I think he might have graduated even summa cum laude from Harvard. So I knew it was possible to do these two things, courtesy of him. But we had no personal or musical relationship until I started playing with Mark. I think he heard me play with Mark and he called me one day and said, Hey, do you want to play a, a session? That's what we call a little rehearsal. And he came over to my house and I called my friend Ruben Rogers, the bassist and a drummer, and we played. And the next day he called me and said, Hey, do you want to play a gig with my band? And I played a couple sort of initial gigs with his band. They went fairly well and then he asked me to to join his band he was starting a new band
0: well i was going to just ask that because this is sort of a, a question that i often wonder about the jazz world because there's there you're there's so much um permeability between bands and, and players coming and going and so if you come in as
1: the pianist what happens to the former pianist
0: <laughs> that kind of thing
1: oh, good question so most of the time um you are called for a gig because the normal pianist can't be there because he has another commitment, with maybe perhaps with his own band, perhaps with another band. And Was his that Brad Meldow at the time? Uh, in the in Josh's case, Josh had famously had a, a kind of all what became an all star band with the best musicians of his generation: Christian McBride, Brian Blade, Brad Meldow in the early '90s, and uh, and that was kind of Josh was coming out, and it was also. Christian and Brian and, and Brad's coming out. And uh, then that band lasted a couple of years. And then Josh, for many years, had a band with a different pianist, a great pianist named Peter Martin. And then he had, right before I, I joined Josh's band, he had had a little bit of a reunion with Brad and uh, and Brian, and they'd made an album together. And they had toured that album, but Brad was embarking on his own career, as as was Brian. So they weren't... Uh, available to actually be the full-time band of josh so josh knew he had to find a new full-time band that could tour in, in supporting this album and future albums so in that case i didn't really replace any existing pianist i i you could say that i replaced brad but brad wasn't really available so um it was time for him to, to find some new presumably a little bit younger guys that would be available for him all the time when he needed us and that's what he did so I joined the band, along with Ruben, a guy who I'd met at Berklee College of Music at age 18, and and Gregory Hutchinson, who was a little bit older and more experienced than us. Mm. So we toured with that band for four years. Sometimes it is uh, rarely, but uh, occasionally true, that you, um, for example, somebody's sick, can't make a gig, you get called to sub for them, and the band leader decides he likes you better than whoever was there before, and... He just stops calling the last guy and starts calling you. And does,
0: does it come down to that? Is it is it calls like that, or are there contracts that you sign? Are, uh,
1: very rarely, there's a contract. For example, uh, jazz at Lincoln Center. When I played with Wynton Marsalis, you do sign a contract when you join the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra and you join Wynton, Wynton's band um, for, a, for a certain period of time. So you, you, I replaced a guy who left in the middle of his contract. So I was called for that gig because the guy who had the gig before me had a falling out, decided he didn't want to fulfill his contract. They needed to find somebody to fill in mm-hmm. the last six, seven months of his contract. So that was me. But that is rare. That is a, that's the only time in my life that you know I've ever had a contract or filled in for somebody with a contract uh, as a sideman or a collaborator in somebody else's band most of the time there's no contract there is an expectation that you are in the band and uh it can be very awkward if you are replaced but you're it's very it's pretty rare um that that there's very rarely formal auditions for example the i had an audition for josh redmond's band without realizing i was auditioning for his band because he said hey let's play some music and usually that's how you are kind of auditioned without anybody saying that you're being auditioned yeah
0: Um, well, it just uh, made me think of a question I was thinking of bringing up later, but it might fit in now around, you know, from my perspective, seeing your career take off, it just seems like it's been soaring really since you left high school. Um, I remember actually, I was living in Taiwan and my mother sent me the press, the the, the the paper clipping announcing that you'd joined the Josh Revin band. I thought, my God, he's made it big. Um but have there been setbacks, you know, challenges that that kind of have rattled you or questioned what's going on?
1: Um, yeah, for, yeah, for sure, of course. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would say that there are kind of two, two sets of challenges that are unrelated. So, you know, one is when uh, when you have a when a band comes to an end, you know. Um, for whatever reason, you could be, it could be your own band, you know, guys are no longer available to play with you that used to be available to play with you because they've, their careers have gotten so big that they're in demand for all these other bands, for example, or you have a falling out with the the band leader of a band that you're playing in, or um, it's just time to move on. People move in separate directions. Mm-hmm. And it, the reason that this is so challenging is because you know, it's, it's very much like a marriage when you're, when you're together with a band for a long time, you spend an awful lot of time with those people. And it can be even more time spent with those people than you spend with your significant other, whoever that might be in your life. And they become, if not, you know, like wives, they become like brothers. And then when you, when you have to part for whatever reason, no matter who's the boss, in the situation, it's pain, it can be painful, especially if there's some kind of issue that comes up, um, whether it's musical or personal. So I think we all have faced those sets of challenges. It's just part of this work that we're in. It, the, the, and it and it's the flip side of the beauty of it, because when you make great music with people, it's an act of love. And you, you show your love for them, and they show their love for you, and you, you find a synergy of minds. I mean, at, at the highest level, bands are operating... Um, subconsciously you know the the interaction between the different members of the band is happening at the at the level of the instant the millisecond much faster than the conscious mind can keep up so you've kind of you're finding a, a kind of m- melding mind melding exp- experience that that allows the music to be created so to speak by the product of four minds working in in harmony without any awareness of self, you know, at the highest level, you're not aware of the distinction between the four selves, and that's that's a love making, literally like a act of unity, a love making kind of act. So it's very, very intimate, um, and it's not something that we talk about all the time, but we all know it, we all feel it. So, you know, you have a love bond with all the people you've made great music with. And when those love bonds, you know, have to end for some reason, that's that's painful. So, that's one set of, you know, challenges. Uh, another, you know, or there's also gigs that you think you were going to get, but you didn't get, or whatever. <laughs> that goes into that category of like, sometimes that's an ego thing, but like, oh, somebody else got this gig that you think you're going to get. Or somebody else is, well, I'll, I'll save this for the second set of challenges. You know, when I was young, there were people that I hoped I would play with that I didn't get a chance to play with um, for whatever reason. So that's a certain kind of social disappointment, mm-hmm. um, be ego related or not. The second set of challenges are business challenges because, you know, this music is unpredictable and everybody's career, the vicissitudes of everyone's career are un- unpredictable and you have Every year you have unexpected ups and you have unexpected downs and you never really know where your money is going to come from and how much is going to be and how many gigs you're going to have that year and how many gigs you're going to have in the next year and how many CDs you're going to sell and and which, you know, which aspects of your career are going to be more successful, which less, which musical relationships are going to flourish, which are not. It's very, very hard to predict all these things. And uh, from the outside, it, of course it looks like I've had a, successful career and i I think i have if i take the big picture um and especially if i consider that i never even thought it was possible and especially if i consider the number of people that try to have music careers in this music and in all forms of music and and give up so i feel extremely fortunate um to 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 be part of this musical fam jazz musical family Let's also, I never, I never imagined I would be accepted, you know, because the the fact is, this is African American music that I play, hmm. and uh, the fact that great, you know, African American masters of this music have always invited, not just invited, but been passionately, um, you know, socially intimate and involved with non African members of the community, like non African American musicians such as myself is is a beautiful thing about america and a beautiful thing about the black community and about this music so um anyway that's a, that's another topic we can return to that so i feel very fortunate to be where i am today nevertheless the business side of the music is very challenging and these days uh it's even more challenging because when i came up as i mentioned before the 90s was a kind of re-flourishing of the music yeah a renaissance so to speak we weren't really aware of that at the time there was some propaganda about it but we were too young to appreciate that older musicians talked about that and uh now i, I see how the music industry has changed since the 90s and i realize actually the 90s were great um because of the, the demise of the record companies because of free music and the streaming and um you know the there's much less money being um put into the the jazz world there's just less. There's no corporate money anymore. Um, a lot of the money that does exist is nonprofit. It's built through nonprofits like Jazzling Center, which is doing an amazing job. But uh, you know, somebody like Joshua Redman used to sell 200,000 copies of his record. Now he sells 5,000 copies. So that's a radical change. Now, fortunately, people still want to go hear Joshua Redman play, and fortunately, live music is is still popular. And that's this is true for you know hip hop artists and uh, you know pop and rock artists as well. Live concerts are are still doing well. But jazz, um, you know, we we benefited from that tour support that the record companies were giving us. We benefited from the promotion of these albums, which doesn't exist anymore. And also the market, because of the internet, has been flooded, flooded with people making their own albums. It's so cheap and easy to make your own album and throw it out there and do a whole bunch of self-promotion on the internet that it's very hard to cull through the mass of Jazz music that's out there, music that calls itself jazz, and find the good stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's very little quality control compared to how there used to be. The quality control back in the day was directed by the musicians themselves and by the A and R people who looked to the musicians to find out who was the next great guy. So if you were an A and R guy and you were working for you know I don't know Warner or, or Polygram or whoever Sony, you would figure out like who's in the band of Miles Davis. Well, you know, let's go back even farther back in time. If you were Blue Note, you the to sign a pianist. How, do you, how are you going to choose Herbie Hancock? Well, he's Miles' pianist. If Miles chose him, you know he's the best guy. So you're going to give Herbie Hancock a record deal. And, and in fact, Herbie Hancock was the best guy because Miles chose the best guy, and everybody wanted to be in Miles' band, and Miles chose Herbie. So you know Herbie's going to make some great records, and sure enough, he did. And you know he's going to be the great star that – he became because Miles chose him and uh and there was quality control exerted from the top on an artistic level and the industry paid attention to that because they saw that actually the these great guys who played with these other great guys themselves became great masters and popular figures and they could make money off of that now there's no such process there's no quality control so much trickier so i would say the business side is a certain set of challenges and negotiating the changes um in the business has been particularly tricky for me and then the social side of becoming super intimate with people that maybe you don't play with forever
0: well i wanted to see if we could go back to that social side of things for a second because when you're talking about that you really describe this kind of unification that occurs during a performance or a, a loss of self in the performance and um, where you're just sort of four beings merging into this simultaneous creation of something. Um, can you say what more, what, what does that feel like while you're in it? Because, I mean, th- th- it's such a um, sort of emotionally-laden, sensitive thing to watch or to experience in the
1: audience. What, what's, what's going on for you during that? Yeah, there's a lot of things I could say about this. The first one I would like to say is that the, the power of the music from an audience perspective at a live show really comes from this, in my opinion. Um, you know, uh, there's there's a, a, a feminist philosopher of art named Braha Ettinger who I discovered who has a, a very elaborate and uh, deep theory that is based around the idea of self-fragilization. So the self becomes more fragile, the sense of self becomes dissolves a little bit in an in an experience of art, whether you're the consumer of the art, you know, the visual purveyor of the art, listener, or the producer, in the case of musicians, um, because your 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 concentration needs to be so total and your the, the input-output relationship, you know, stimuli coming in. Remember, I'm trying to as a as a pianist playing in a quartet, for example, I am Trying to, as best I can, hear and react to every single note that is being played by the saxophone, the bass, and the drums, and myself at every single millisecond. So I'm trying to process this inordinate amount of information. Process is not quite the right word because it doesn't feel like I'm processing anything, but I am, everything that I play is a reaction to everything that I just played and everybody else is playing at that moment. So and great jazz is made by multiple people playing together with that kind of necessity and mindset. So there's no room for anything except for that that kind of input output process. I don't want to sound make it sound too dry because it's not dry because there's an emotional content to it coming from everybody as well developmentally if i can just pause for a second developmentally
0: you know you talked about your process in high school developing a jazz vocabulary that sort of seems like a essential foundation of of development for an improviser but at at the level that you're describing there just now what
1: how do you practice or prepare for that so so this is what separates you know The women from the girls, the men from the boys, the professionals from the students and the the geniuses from the merely great and the great from the really good is the ability to play with others at a high level and react to everything that's going on in the moment and make extremely good decisions spontaneously, intuitively and give the music your emotional content. And react to everyone else's and support everyone else and show your love and respect for what everyone else is deciding to do in the moment and to to, to achieve that level of flexibility and flow in the present, in the now, so to speak, is something you can only get good at by doing it a lot, a lot, all the time. Which is something that I I kind of intuited when I was in college, and that's one reason that I just tried to play with people as much as I could, as opposed to sit in my practice room and, you know, try to learn more vocabulary. Mm -hmm. It's a a rhythm section skill that you can only develop by doing it a lot. And I saw that also with Ruben, you know, when he came to Berkeley, he wasn't the best bass player, but everybody liked him, and he had a good feel, and so he just got—and he always wanted to play, and he was full of energy— and he got so much better so fast because he was just constantly playing with people Hmm. and i I realized that i mean it was the same thing for me at the new school that the more i played the better i got and you're not necessarily aware of that from day to day you need to have certain building blocks but uh it's it's integral there's no way to practice that except by doing it but i think that you also have to be aware of your strengths and weaknesses as you're doing it, or be able to reflect upon them. So one way to do that is you listen back to recordings of yourself playing in bands and you realize when you made a bad decision or, you know, when there was an opportunity that you missed or when you weren't thinking fast enough or, you know, when, oh, you sounded good on these kind of fast songs, but not on the ballads, or your accompanying is better in this minor key than in the major key. You know, you have to do a a, a post facto analysis of your strengths and weaknesses in order to improve on your weaknesses and you know as a teacher that's super important to get students to do that but really what everybody needs is a lot of experience and and particularly experience playing with people that are better than you
0: so and that's, very
1: much, that's very much like a sport yeah. so you know um i i there's a there was an interview i read with mulgrew miller one of my favorite pianists who sadly left us recently and he was t- talking about a conversation he had with Tommy Flann again. And he, he said he asked Tommy Flann, is an, another masterful pianist who was about 20 years older than, than Mulgrew, and Mulgrew asked Tommy, like, what separates the greatest pianist from the rest? And Tommy said, they just spend more time playing the piano. So there's a certain kind of truth in that, which is just the the, the more time you spend at your instrument with in my opinion with people the better you're going to get at this skill set mm-hmm. and there's no substitute for that it's a social music
0: i was wondering if i know some of the musicians like sonny rollins and herbie herbie hancock too i think they they did get into buddhism and, and meditative practices i think to support maybe cross-train for this kind
1: of experience you're describing so yeah the it there's there's a few jazz musicians that famously are devotees of of Japan a particular school of Japanese Buddhism I guess it's called Nichiren Buddhism hmm. uh, they do a lot of chanting and it has some different names but it's a very contemporary Japanese school of Buddhism that is from what I've un- understood of it you know from reading Herbie and talking to some people like Buster Williams who also practice it it's pretty divorced from the traditional Indian concept, uh, or even like a Nepalese Buddhism. So they, there is some meditation, but there's a lot of chanting for things that you want. So mm. in a way, it's almost closer to like a self-help kind of tradition, or even a Scientology tradition, where you're visual, you're visualizing, or a sports visualization, mm. in my opinion, is something close, where you, athletes do this, where they visualize their goal, and they visualize themselves achieving that goal, and then it helps them to actually arrive at that goal. And, uh, you know, Herbie gives, in particular, gives a lot of credit to to his Buddhist practice, and I think there's no question that it's really helped him in his life a huge amount. But I would also note that Herbie was the best long before he became a Buddhist. You know, he was the best guy at playing the piano at the highest possible level in all these bands with all these masters, he was the most in demand, and he was already highly successful as a band leader as well before he became a Buddhist. So I, 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 if he gives himself credit, um, if he gives Buddhism credit for training him, I think it it deserves the credit that he gives it for training him for life. But as far as for training him for to be a great musician, I would say, well, he was already there. It was already there, you know. As was Wayne Shorter, you know, the other very famous Buddhist practitioner. But there's, I mean, I have the utmost respect for them as humans and musicians. I mean, they are truly the two of the most magnificent humans on the planet. And uh, you know, they it's you know left me in tears meeting them and listening to them on many occasions. So I'm I'm not um, not I'm not not taking that, their claims seriously, but I just offer that up too. I, th- I think that the the skill set that musicians acquire is very specific. Jazz musicians, in particular, and and especially rhythm section players, it's very very specific, and it, in my opinion, can only be acquired by experience. Mm-hmm. Um, given that
0: you're kind of an ambassador for the for the jazz tradition, um, or one of the many one of the ambassadors now uh, on the world circuit. Um, how concerned are you about the viability of the art form given the kind of business uh, dynamics that you were describing um, given just the kind of the attention span of, of most people listening to music these days. Um, what, what, do you have any concerns about it? Do you have any uh, advice around it for people? Cause I know I talk to people and they say, jazz seems interesting. I just don't understand what's going on. It just seems like they're just, it's sort of chaotic or, Um, And there seems to be even within the tradition, like historically, there's been kind of a somewhat of a divorce or a a, a dissociation between the the musicians or the music being created and the audience, where at one point it was a dance music and then it, it sort of became more and more alienated from the participation of the audience. And I think there's been more of a resurgence lately with musicians, even like yourself, sometimes where you play a pop cover. Do, do a cover, I know, on one of your albums you do a really interesting version of a Stevie Wonder tune, Isn't She Lovely? Um, but where where is the, the art form going in terms of its audience? And, and
1: There's a lot of good questions in there. I'll try to take them apart. Yes, I have a bit of a, a sample. Jazz musicians have always improvised with the pop music of the day. I mean, that is something that every single jazz musician has always done, from Louis Armstrong on. And even before, you know, Jelly Roll Moore, all the early pianists, even you know, people like Scott Joplin, that you know were kind of pre-jazz. Uh, and even there's this whole there's this whole repertoire of standards, right? The, the, and yeah, the sta- so-called standards that became part of the jazz musicians' repertoire were popular songs of the day that started out as musicals, you know, in in Broadway musicals. So the entire yeah the entire jazz improvisation tradition has um, embraced. This idea that we're going to play these familiar melodies, which also have familiar harmonies attached to them, and we're going to improvise with them, bringing our own melodies to these familiar harmonies and varying the original melodies to create something new and hipper than the original. You know, because this is part of the issue going back to it being African American music, because the popular melodies of the day were mainly, you know, white American, you know, popular melodies of the day, and they, At least from a rhythmic standpoint, no matter how genius they were from a melodic, you know, harmonic standpoint, they were made hipper by the jazz musicians of the day. They were just made funkier and better and more danceable. So, you know, but this this tradition of paying attention to pop music um, is a long-standing tradition and has never stopped even for a second. I mean, all through the fifties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, jazz musicians up until the you know the twenty-first century have always played pop music of the day. And that continues not just with me, but with Brad Meldow and, and everybody that you might know, that you might have heard of as a contemporary jazz musician, does this. Plays in a in a totally new way, sometimes a barely recognizable way, pop music of the day. And and they do it not primarily to appeal to a new audience or to appeal to a young audience. But I mean there's a whole t- school of, of jazz melding with hip hop today. So it's like jazz musicians and hip hop musicians are actually making music together. And it makes sense because the original, you know, the original hip hop like path was improvisational. It was freestyling. So, you know, there's a deep improvisational element in all black music. Um, and jazz is just one of many African-American musics that have always kind of been talking to each other. So there's a, there's a dialogue between jazz and the other forms of black music. There's a dialogue between jazz and all the popular white music of the day and uh you know there's and now in different countries of the world you have jazz musicians international jazz musicians improvising with the popular music and folk music of their native traditions right so you have indian musicians playing indian jazz you have you know latin american musicians playing latin jazz you have brazilian guys playing brazilian jazz you have american guys playing brazilian jazz you have bulgarians playing bulgarian gypsy jazz you have you know you have this this is a very fruitful and and i would say never-ending you know fountain of of, uh, material that's in the in the pop world in because it's the music that you grew up with it's part of what goes into your ears and uh it's it's natural that you'd want to kind of use that for your improvisational art so that part of it i think is not new and it will always continue and it's constantly being refreshed you know there's amazing music being made today consisting of jazz musicians having fun taking apart the various elements of all the different strands of pop music of today, and hip hop, and you know rock, everything. So that part, I think, is alive and well, and and kind of safe uh, for the future. And 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 I have fun with it, and everybody that I work with also has fun with it. So uh, I'm not worried, in the sense that jazz will always survive because it's it's the highest form of musical art. I mean it's certainly the highest form of improvisational art that we have in the music world. And there will always be people that are that spend their life trying to get better at it because it's it's just such a high art form in the way that writing is, you know, not not in danger of dying. There will always be amazing writers because there's just so much amazing work, you know to, to read and that will forever inspire you to try to create work. So there's such a body of magnificent jazz and, and improvisational music that there will always be musicians inspired to, to play at a high level. And there's no shortage of amazing musicians playing now that are just as great as, you know, most of my, my heroes. Uh, the audience attention span thing is a real problem. And it, in my opinion, it started long ago. I mean, with music videos, because all of a sudden, the quality of the music wasn't necessarily the thing that determined the, the hit value because, the, you know, the, so much money and effort was put into making the video. So, and now, when, when you're young and you see this with kids all the time, they're paying attention to the videos. You know, they're imitating the videos, the dancing of everybody in the videos. And with the Internet, video is even that much more important. So people's ability to just sit, close their eyes and listen to something – is, is, you know, depressingly uh, weak. <laughs> weak mm-hmm. as it's probably ever been in the history of humanity. Um, so to oral music, you know, or oral sources that, that are non-visual, music that does not have a visual component is in trouble. And uh, this is something that we have to, you know, the education system is the only thing that can help us with this. You know, we have to teach kids not just to appreciate jazz, but just to be able to sit and listen to something you know, for five minutes at a time. Now, live concerts have a visual element, so they're not going to suffer as much. It's fun for people, even who don't understand jazz, to go to jazz concerts. And this will bring us back to the second part of your question. Many, many times, every day, every day that I play a concert, there's somebody that comes up to me and says something on the order of, wow, uh, I never knew I liked jazz. But I, I kind of get it. Like I could see you guys were talking to each other and I, I didn't really understand what you were doing. But I could see there was a conversation and, and it just – I really liked that one song and I, and I was dancing or I was – my eyes were closed and I just felt all these emotions. You, you always reach new audience members who are surprised that they like jazz. And you, but you might not reach them the same way. Each person is going to get reached in a different way. Some people, they want to move. So if you play, I mean, to my, in my opinion, the greatest jazz has always made people move, even if it if it's not a music for partner dancing the way it maybe used to be back in the day, you know, with the Lindy Hop. If if I look out in the audience, you know, at a concert that I'm playing or even a concert of my friends and I'm sitting there, people are moving their head. They're bouncing around. They're snapping their fingers they're tapping their foot. That's a dance, you know. That's music that makes you feel good. If, you, if it's making your body move and shake, shake your booty in your seat, that's enough. That's enough to reach people. It doesn't have to be like a show everybody, like in a club. It doesn't have to get people out of their seats to move people on a rhythmic standpoint. And then other people, you're going to move them with pure beauty. You know, you're going to move them in the way that they'll be moved by a, a ballad in in a a pop ballad or, or the way they'll be moved by a classical piece in by an orchestra, you know, you're going to move them with the, the emotional, you know, aesthetic beauty that has always been a part of, you know, moving people through music. Uh, and it's, I, I would argue that stimulating similar parts of your brain is get stimulated when you, you know, when you see something beautiful, I think there's a kind of aesthetic experience that is powerful for people. And it's, uh, it probably has a lot in common with other modalities. So you're going to in just, you know, just I played this past weekend, Friday and Saturday night, and I had three or four of these conversations with different people. And they, and, and in one case I was talking to three people at the same time who were all saying completely opposed things about what they liked about the concert. Mm -hmm. And one person liked the exact same thing. The other person didn't like. (laughs) Um, And it was, it was fascinating for me. and, And that's a part of my life. And it's, it's, It's most amazing to me how many times I get asked a question like this. So, um, can I ask you a question? I said, Yeah, I know the concert was amazing. I loved it; it was magnificent. But I have this question: like, so did you memorize all of those notes, or like, was there some improvisation, or or was it all like written somewhere? And but I didn't see you using any music. Or can I see the music that was sitting in front of you? Like, are all those notes written there? But I didn't see the drummer use you know there's a very basic lack of understanding of what you're doing even the bare that that jazz is improvisational music amongst even people that consider themselves fans of jazz and people that go to hear jazz a lot and that's that's i think our fault as uh, as artists we also have to be educators to a certain degree and make sure that people have at least a little bit of appreciation for for how we do and what we do um what we do so <laughs> what we do how we do what we do so I admire people like Winton for taking on that role, and I try to do it a little bit myself. And I think, you know, these there's a lot of progress to be made just with having pre and post concert conversations with people, whether they're formalized or informalized. And but we need to, you know, we need to teach people this is really America's greatest art form. I, I strongly believe that, and it's also one of the, you know, most democratic and most kind of like um, racially diverse aspects of our society. Um, I mean, the jazz family is a kind of magnificently post-racial little community of people that embrace, you know, African-American music. It sounds like a, a contradiction in terms, but it's only I know, post-racial in the sense that like there's, there's no racial tension anymore. And there was, of course, yep. but basically, in, at least in New York City, there's no racial tension in this family that's like a it's a multi-racial family and everybody's just coming from the same place as far as i can see Uh, and that's magnificent and and the country has a lot to learn from that so i think we can do a much better job promoting this music and teaching people about this music as a country maybe not with trump as president but
0: yeah um (laughs) i'm I'm not gonna pick pick that bait (laughs) on this talk um um we are coming towards the to the end of a long stretched hour here but um do you have any like maybe closing advice for people that do or they like might be interested after listening to you now talk now like what would they do to go out and and start to develop a greater appreciation or ability to really it's an ability to appreciate like does it just take a, like an album and maybe sit down and yeah,
1: I... yeah th- thanks I mean, I think it's it needs to be said that there are some people that don't like jazz. <laughs> and I don't think it's our job as jazz musicians to reach everybody. But I, I will say that most of the time, um, the people that don't like jazz had a legitimately bad experience with jazz in the same way that you can not like oysters because you <laughs> ate one bad oyster. As soon as you have that one bad oyster, you're going to hate oysters. Your body has evolved to make you hate oysters, so you avoid that bad experience. It's too bad, just bad luck. So if you walk into a jazz club and you're, you know, your friend takes to hear some jazz and it happens to be not that good, you might be conditioned. No, jazz, don't like it. And the sad truth is there is a lot of bad jazz out there in the world. Jazz is a very difficult music to play well. It is played well by a very small percentage of the people in the world that call themselves jazz musicians. Um, Especially if you don't live in New York or New Orleans, the chance that you've encountered bad jazz is very high. Hmm. Now if you're lucky enough to live in New York or New Orleans. Chances are you do like jazz because you've been to some jazz clubs and you've heard some good jazz. So if you don't live in New York or New Orleans, I would recommend you take a trip to New York or New Orleans and go to one of the best jazz clubs in those places. Maybe you can ask somebody what's a good night to go, who's playing, you know, somebody who knows. And have an experience of live jazz music played at the highest level. And unfortunately, it's not accessible everywhere. It is accessible in other parts of the world at jazz festivals. So there's a few famous jazz festivals. Hopefully, if you know, you could go to the Mon- Montreal or Umbria or, you know, hopefully you'll find some good jazz there. But that's not a guarantee either. So that's one way to have an experience of a great concert live. The other thing I would say is if if you're someone who, for example, likes has a long attention span and you like, for example, listening to classical music, start with, you know, starts with miles Davis. That's what I tell people. That's the way I learned, you know, start with miles Davis, choose a miles Davis album from the fifties or maybe early sixties. Some of the highest art form, you know, some of the highest art that, that, My family, my jazz family has produced, was produced by Miles and people that work with Miles in the 50s and 60s. Start there. If you like it, find another Miles album. If you don't like it, but you might like something related, choose an album by somebody who played with Miles Davis. John Coltrane, Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, you know, the list is long. So if they play with Miles, guarantee they're good. So try something by one of those guys start there and you'll eventually branch out into the whole history of the music and it'll take you into the present day and the past yeah and you'll go in both directions
0: all right so all all roads do converge with miles i i would say so yeah no it's great um it's been wonderful talking to you wonderful getting to listen to you and, and catch up this way. Um, just want to really appreciate your time and, uh, generosity here. If people want to find you, um, what's the best way to, f- is it your website, Aaron Uh,
1: yeah. Well, if people want to find out information, uh, you know, about me, what I'm up to, maybe where I'm playing, uh, those kind of things, biographical stuff. My website is Aaron Goldberg.com. That's true. And, uh, there's a, facebook page like an, an artist page that supposedly should have also that kind of information on it um, i have some facebook personal pages you could try to friend me there or you could send me an email my email is aaron goldberg 99 at yahoo.com i will tell you straight up i'm not the fastest responder to emails i have an inordinate amount of red emails i won't tell you exactly how many embarrass any large number but uh, that is my email, and I would be happy to hear from you. Any questions or uh, want to say hello, that's a good way.
0: Good. And and maybe la- one more thing. Your a recent
1: album or two, the last album came out was called The Now, right? Yeah, the last album that came out is called The Now. Uh, there's another album that's been made. It's finished. It doesn't have a definitive title yet, um, but it should come out. I would say probably in the spring of 2018 so uh,
0: yeah and we didn't really have time to get into it but the, the, these relation, musical relationships you've had are now 20 years going right with your bass player reuben rogers and drummer eric Harlan. so these albums are, are not just like a, a new band all the time it's just forming it's some it's really this evolution of
1: this core group so that that is correct i played with reuben and Eric for 20 years. I've also played with uh, another set of great guys that I I still play with, Omer Avital and Ali Jackson also just as long. And uh, I actually just started a new band. So this next album has has new guys on it, um, new collaborators, but they're actually not new because I've also known them for 20 years. Hmm. So a magnificent bass player named Matt Penman Right. And uh, a magnificent drummer who I actually grew up listening to named Leon Parker. So he's a drummer and a body and vocal percussionist as well. So I've been playing with Matt and Leon and we recorded. Uh, so all these bands are now coexisting and I hope hope to play with these guys for the rest of my life. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing you live next time you're in your hometown. Thank you so much, John. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Awesome. Thanks a lot.
0: All right, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Aaron as much as I did. And um, again, if you're inspired, if you're curious, please check out Aaron's music in the show notes where I give you a list of my favorite Aaron Goldberg albums or CDs. Um, In my meditation trainings, I often play a piece of music at one point to, to kind of illustrate some points about meditation. And I use a particular song that Aaron recorded which is an Abdullah Ibrahim cover called "Maraba Blue from his album or from Aaron's album, Yes. So that's listed in the show notes. Do check it out. Um, And stay tuned. Aaron will be coming back on this show soon, and we'll be discussing what jazz lessons have for society. And I hope to get into what jazz lessons have for spirituality, especially in terms of listening and improvisation. So... I'll see you soon. I look forward to seeing you soon. Until then, take good care, stay safe, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. All the best.